This podcast contains adult themes and language, and some of the things that we discuss may be disturbing to some listeners. In this podcast, we discuss sexual assault, torture, race, and murder. Listener discretion is advised. Welcome to Fruit Loops, episode 88. Bienvenidos, bitches. Thanks for <laughs> listening. Fruit Loops is a podcast about true crimes committed by people of color and their victims that we don't hear or know much about. Contrary to popular belief, not all serial killers are straight cisgender white dudes. No! There are many well-documented cases of serial killers of color, and Fruit Loops is a podcast all about them. We will take deep dives into the fascinating lives and crimes of serial killers and true crimes committed by people of color and the victims that the media and entertainment commonly leave out because the news is racist! Allegedly. And we are Wendy and Beth. She's Wendy. I'm Beth. We're not journalists, investigators, or psychologists. Mm -hmm. Just a couple of gals interested in true crime. Also, the opinions expressed in this podcast are just that, our opinions. Please send any questions or comments to fruitloopspod at gmail.com or leave us a voicemail at 602-935-6294. And we may feature it on a future episode. Also, our website is fruitloopspod.com, and we use Fruit Loops Pod for all our social media. The footnotes for each episode can be found on our website. Plus, check it out for the different ways you can help support the show or become a Fruit Loops patron. Yeah. So, who are we talking about today, Beth? Today, we're talking about Dorothy Williams, a black woman who preyed on the elderly in Chicago, Illinois, in the 1980s. Chicago. So before we dive in, how you doing? Uh, uh, Uh-oh. Uh-oh. Yeah, just, just getting uh, tired of uh, everything. That's yeah. all. Yeah. Yeah. I, I feel you. I, I've been listening to my horoscope, reading tarot cards, all the things. Uh, everything just says, hold on to the end of yeah. the month. <laughs> yeah. I kind of just want to go to sleep and wake up in December. <laughs> Yeah. Yeah. I feel yeah. you. Um, I'm just tired. Yeah. Nothing, yeah. I have absolutely nothing to report. Mm. <laughs> I don't either, really. I mean, um, we're good over here. Nothing uh, to report. Um, off the rip, though, I feel like we should say RIP to John Lewis. Yeah. Um, at first, I thought it was a hoax because, like, last week or the week before, Twitter was like, oh, no, he's dead. But Twitter lied. Sometimes oh. it does that. Yeah. Um, but sadly, this time it was true. And yeah. it's crazy since we as a family literally just finished watching that documentary about him, about oh, wow. Good Trouble. It's really, really good. It's not the shout out portion, but everybody should watch it. He says, okay. "Get you if you see something that's not right, you see something that's unfair, do something. Get into trouble. Good trouble. But good trouble. Get yeah, trouble. I like yeah. it. Yeah. Um, and I also wanted to apologize because last week when um, the Washington team, we, you know, 
finally agreed to change their name. We rejoiced, but I didn't realize that saying the name in this triumph is also traumatizing. So let's keep sharing the news that the name is going to change, but we don't have to keep saying the name. Okay. Um, so good to know. Anyway, yeah. Uh, so that's that. Uh, now we are going to dive into some listener letters. Help me. Let me get my shit together here. Um, okay. Listener letters. Well, hello, angels. Thank you. Mm, yes. What's in that bag, Beth? What you got in that bag? Well, Ian emailed us and said, white ally slash son of Irish immigrants here. Just wanted to say I heard an episode in which you talked about the game. Guess who? We bought the game quite recently, I'd say within the past six months. And there are definitely some transgender characters included in the game now. Very cool. Yeah. Yeah. Also, you talk a lot about white oppression, which I fully acknowledge and agree with you on. But you never talk about religion and its role of instilling that superiority in white people. It all roots in religion, allegedly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't think he's wrong. I mean, it all. It, yeah. it, I think it all has to do with colonialism and imperialism. Period. Yeah. Uh, yeah. All, all those things are sort of um, tied together. Upon, yeah, yeah, tied together and put upon us. So, yeah. But, He's not wrong. He goes on to say on another note regarding the pod, I listen to podcasts all day at work. I'm an electrician. And when your pod is playing, I'm constantly bursting out in laughter randomly. (laughs) (laughs) They must think he's crazy. (laughs) (laughs) My trash bag coworkers must think I'm crazy. (laughs) You guys are fucking hilarious. I live in, and he has a little TR, Asheville, so it spells Trashville. (laughs) North Carolina, and it's full of trash bag white people i wish there was more people like you two here anyway keep up the good work thank you ian yes hip-hop air horns oh whoops wrong sound effect (laughs) (laughs) uh here we go all right brother ian yes and thank you for listening and also shout out to Asheville, even though it's a trash bag as you say (laughs) and from what we know over 80 percent white apparently your city Asheville, north carolina has approved reparations for black residents so shout out to your city and hip-hop air horns to Asheville. yes yeah and i actually have a family in Asheville. Do you now? Yeah, I went to visit there a couple years ago. And from what I understand, it's it's pretty liberal. Mm-hmm. But uh, I'm sure there's lots of trash bag people, too. <laughs> sure. Yeah. I mean, they're everywhere. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> we can't escape them. <laughs> uh, but uh, yeah, I, I thought that was exciting news. It was funny because Trevor Noel was like, Ash is like, a black person's worst enemy. So can you change? Can you change your name change to Moisturizeville? <laughs> Moisturizeville. <laughs> I like that one. What else we got? We also got a lovely iTunes review from Killer Miller. Ooh. And uh, Killer Miller said, "Hey gals, I thought I exhausted all the best true crime podcasts out there, but I was wrong. Ooh. Not only do y'all tell an amazing story, and I love to chuckle with you, but you also tell stories of serial killers I never knew existed." And mm. my white brains are on the floor. Hey, <laughs> sometimes it happens to y'all yeah. brains. I just don't understand. 
<laughs> Many thanks for what you're doing, Wendy and Beth. You are amazing. I'm super excited to binge your pod. And hip-hop air horns to you, Killer Miller, and thank you. Yes. No, you are amazing. No, yeah. you are. <laughs> Um, also, we got some new patrons this week. Woo-hoo. Don't judge me. Okay. Philly girl, you rock my world. I need your love each and every day. Uh, and then uh, we also got another <laughs> patron. Uh, sometimes you want to go where Dara Jordan knows your name. <laughs> boom, 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 boom. And we're always glad you came. You want to be where you can see. True crime ain't all the same. You want to go where Dara Jordan knows your name. <laughs> all Good right. One. Thank you. Thank you very much. Another one. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> Before we get into our episode, we'd like to say this every now and then before the podcast gets started, that um, this is a podcast about true crime and people of color. True crime is difficult to talk about and hear about sometimes in race, LGBTQ issues, all those things can be as well. But it's all just a part of the world that we live in. We want this area to be a safe space where we can have discussions about it. We may not always get it right, but we are trying and learning all the time and hopefully trying to be our best sexy selves. Amen. Yeah. And we welcome our listeners to be part of the conversation on Facebook or Twitter at Fruit Loops Pod or email us at Fruit Loops Pod at gmail.com. You know where to find us. Yeah. Uh, so now we're going to take a quick break and then we're going to get into the story when we come back. Hello and welcome to Boozed Podcast, where we get supernatural and shit faced. I'm your host, Camille Monet, and I invite you to join me and my guest every other Thursday for Spirited Stories. We look at each other and we go, did that just happen? And then her hand, she still had the sucker, it fell over, and then it stood back up, and then the gate closed. Lush lore. And as it turns out, Maria, in a former life, was an evil witch. Oh. (laughs) And intoxicating inquiries. I mean, I know some hogs can be really freaking big. They can. They can be huge. And huge. They'll eat you. So, I mean, wait, I'm sorry, what? Pigs will eat you. Pour a drink, warm up the Ouija board, and prepare to get three ghost sheets to the wind. You can summon a new episode every other Thursday on Apple Podcast, Stitcher, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you for listening. And don't forget, get boozed. So we're back. So Beth, remind us who we're talking about. Who's our subject today? (laughs) Today we're talking about Dorothy Williams, a black woman who murdered three elderly people in Chicago, Illinois in the 1980s. So now we are going to dive into some stats. Let me uh, cue up the right sound effect here. Where are you? Okay, Dorothy Williams was a black female serial killer. She had three victims. Uh, Her murders took place between December 5th, 1987 to July 25th, 1989. The victims were, let's speak their names, rest in power, y'all, Lonnie Laws, 79, Cesar Zuel, 64, and Mary Harris was 97. Uh, The murders 
took place in Cook County, Illinois, and Williams was sentenced to death in 1991. But before we dive into all the details, um, we'll set the stage for who Dorothy was and what the hell happened. Uh, so uh, now we're going to dive into the setting, a very important part of the story, and uh, take it away, Beth. So the setting is Chicago, Illinois. Black people have a long history in Chicago. Fugitive enslaved people and freedmen established the city's first black community in the 1840 or 1840s. Yeah. Fast forward. (laughs) First black community in the 1840s. Black and white abolitionists were active in Chicago, but black people still suffered from segregation and black Chicagoans could neither vote nor testify against whites in court. After Reconstruction in the South, Black Southerners made their way to Chicago, pushing the city's Black population from approximately 4,000 in 1870 to 15,000 in 1890. Steady Southern migration raised Chicago's Black population from 40,000 by 1910. Increasingly concentrated in the city's South Side, Chicago's Black population developed a class structure composed of a large number of domestic workers and other manual laborers, along with a small but growing contingent of middle and upper class business and professional elites. Ooh, they're getting bad and bougie. Uh, During the (laughs) early years of the 20th century, Chicago's racial lines hardened and Black people had difficulty finding available housing. By 1910, 78% of Black Chicagoans lived in a chain of neighborhoods on the south side of Chicago, referred to as the Black Belt. Black people were excluded from the civil service, industrial jobs, and most unions. But during World War I, industrial jobs previously closed to Black people suddenly became available, and at least 50,000 Black Southerners moved to Chicago between 1916 and 1920. That's a lot in a short span of time. Oh, yeah. Black businesses prospered, and Black political candidates won increased representation in the city council. So instead of Rosie the Rivet, they should have had Rashad and Rainisha the Riveters. Yeah. Um, we've mentioned before on the show, but the growth of the Black population was in part due to the Great Migration. Uh, <clears throat> Welcome to Culture Corner with Wendy and Beth. The Great Migration is the long-term refugee movement. Uh, yeah, American refugees. It's a tragedy, I'm telling you. Of movement of Black people fleeing racial violence and terrorism in the South, For the urban north, Chicago attracted more than 500,000 of the approximately 7 million Black people who left the South during these decades. Before this migration, Blacks constituted 2% of Chicago's population, and by 1970, were about 33%. And one thing that contributed to the Great Migration was the railroad system, and Chicago was one of the stops. Yeah. At the end of World War I, Black soldiers were returning home from war. Having been used to being treated like human beings abroad, they chafed at the way they were being treated at home, as white Americans barely recognized their service and wanted them back in their assigned segregated places. Yeah, it's an interesting thing um, how uh, white people are very peculiar to me in that they assume that by like raising the floor for other people that they are going to lose their footing somehow. Yeah. So they like the increase in power or opportunity for other people signifies a loss in like a, a, a serious loss to them. And yeah, I think 
that was really troubling and why people got so crazy and lost their minds. In addition, a shortage of housing in Chicago made finding a home difficult for all Chicagoans. But the migrants and refugees, um, the Black people, had a particularly difficult time finding housing in the overcrowded and overpriced Black Belt. Attempts to move into adjoining white neighborhoods sparked violent reactions. All of this contributed to racial tensions. These tensions exploded in the summer of 1919 when five days of rioting left 23 Black Chicagoans dead and 300 wounded. This is known as the Red Summer, which was the result of economic and racial tensions after the war. The Red Summer is the period from late winter through the early autumn of 1919, during which white supremacist terrorism and racial riots took place in more than three dozen cities across the United States and Chicago in particular. Yeah, uh, the spark was when at a public segregated beach during a heat wave that summer, a black boy, 17 year old Eugene Williams, while floating on a raft, drifted over the invisible line uh, that white people suddenly <laughs> created that separated the white from the black side. And one white beachgoer began throwing rocks at the children, black children, and Eugene Williams fell off of his raft and drowned. To add insult to injury, police refused to arrest the white man who had thrown the stones after the black people pleaded with them. Cut to black people trying to defend themselves in the face of white people losing their goddamn minds. And by the end of it, dozens of people were dead, most of them black. Yep. Uh, painful American history. Uh, in the 1920s, the Chicago outfit, a branch of the American mafia, rose to prominence. The outfit's roots go back to the early 1900s with an influx of Italian immigrants in Chicago. And street gangs controlled various criminal activity. And by the way, I heard that they were um, able to conduct a lot of their business in the black parts of town. Yeah. Um, prohibition took effect in 1919, at which time the outfit took over the alcohol industry, which had gone underground. Before Prohibition, the outfit focused mostly on gambling and the sex trade. But afterwards, bootlegging became a major source of income. What followed was the Beer Wars, the most violent episode of organized crime in American history. And in 1929, Al Capone was leading the outfit when he ordered the murders of seven members of the Irish-American Northside Gang in the St. Valentine's Day Massacre on February 14th, 1929. Oh, it was a real war. Like, Beer Wars sounds like a fun drinking game silly, show. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> but it was, that's that's when you see all, you know, the stories about all the guys with the Tommy guns shooting each other and stuff. That was the Beer Wars. <laughs> oh! See, learn something new every episode. Uh, <laughs> between 1925 and 1929, Black Chicagoans gained more access to city jobs, expanded their professional class, and won elective office in local and state government. These years also marked the peak of Chicago jazz. During the day, Chicago was se segregated, but at night, both Black and white people frequented the stroll, the heart of the jazz scene in Chicago. But the Great Depression undercut many of these gains. By 1939, Blacks constituted 40% of relief rolls, and half of all Black families relied on some government aid for subsistence. And and that's because, you know, the Black people were probably the first 
to lose their jobs and the last to get hired back. Yes. So, yeah, Black Chicagoans tried to fight back. In the fall of 1929, the Chicago Whip, a Black newspaper, ran a spend your money where you can work campaign, which targeted boycotts at chain stores that would serve but not hire Blacks. Yeah, and uh, that's another interesting um, thing about um, government assistance um, is that if the people receiving assistance look like you, this is why it's like successful in like Norway and other countries where their, their populations are more um, homogenous. Right. Yeah. But in the United States, this great experiment, this great melting pot, when other people who don't look like you seem to be getting more than you or more help. Yeah. It's like unacceptable. Like yeah. how dare they, yeah. how dare they need help? <laughs> uh, so uh, the campaign was instrumental in obtaining over 15,000 jobs in Chicago for black people. In the 1950s, the expanding use of mechanical cotton picker pushed another wave of black agricultural workers out of the South, um, which actually really hurt the South. Um, between 1940 and 1960, Chicago's black population grew from 278,000 to 813,000. Wow. Wow, wow. Look at that. Yeah. Way to go, black people. <laughs> On the one hand, the south side of Chicago was the quote-unquote capital of black America. It was home to the nation's most powerful black politician, Democratic Congressman William L. Dawson, the most prominent black man in America, boxing champion Joe Lewis, and the most widely read black newspaper, the Chicago Defender. Mm. On the other hand, Black people still faced widespread employment discrimination. Uh, Stores in the loop refused to hire Black people as clerks. Black bus drivers, police officers, and firefighters were limited to positions serving their own community, and construction trades remained closed to Black people. The second Great Migration made Chicago's already overcrowded living conditions even worse, as more and more people tried to fit into substandard apartments, converted kitchenettes and basement apartments in which heating and plumbing were poor, if functioning at all. Mm. Street crime in Black communities remained a low priority for Chicago's police, and violence, sex work, and other vice-type crimes soared in Black neighborhoods. Again, not because they're so fun. It's that people need to do what they need to do to survive. Yeah. Um, Elizabeth Wood, executive director of the Chicago Housing Authority, CHA, tried to ease the pressure in the overcrowded Black neighborhoods by proposing public public housing sites in less congested areas elsewhere in the city in 1946. But of course, white people reacted with intense and sustained violence as they do. With a few exceptions, by the end of the 20th century, black people constituted less than 3% of the population in Chicago's northern and western suburbs. 3%. Mm. They found greater success in moving into southern suburbs where they migrated in large numbers in the 50s and 60s. But these communities suffered from the decline of local industries in the final third of the 20th century. The Reagan administration's attacks on social welfare programs in the early 1980s and decades of neglect from Chicago politicians further weakened these communities. And that is... I used to think they called Chicago the Windy City because it's so windy and cold there. But it has to do with the politicians and their corruption and how much they just sway and, you know, bob and weave and, um, (laughs) you know, will do whatever it takes to stay in power, keep the money going and um, 
has nothing to do with the weather. <laughs> I thought it had to do with the wind coming off the lake. Oh, no, I believe it originated. I, and I researched this a long time ago. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Probably should have looked it up more closely to when we recorded this. But I have heard <laughs> that it has to do with the corruption and the way the politicians bob and weave. Gotcha. Black Chicagoans' political activism reignited in Harold Washington's 1983 mayoral campaign, and Washington became Chicago's first Black mayor. Mm. Washington faced intense opposition from a predominantly white city council whose famous quote-unquote council wars blocked most of his initiatives until a 1986 court order forced revisions in the gerrymandering that favored white city council candidates in a city where white voters seldom supported black or Latinx candidates. Hmm. I'm not surprised. It's just so awful to see it and black and white in my screen and hear you say it out loud. Um, You know, Brian Stevenson, we've brought him up countless times on this show, but he was like, wouldn't, you know, people are so like anti-reparations because they think it's the idea of cutting a check. But what if reparations was like, you know what? Sorry, we like screwed you guys on like the right to vote. How about every black person automatically registered to vote for the rest of their lives? And uh, as soon as you turn 18, you're automatically registered to vote and we're going to make voting easier for you. Uh, just, just a way to acknowledge and say, sorry. Yeah. Um, try to make things better. (laughs) Yeah. Yeah. No, I mean, that could totally be done at any point with the stroke of a pen. But anyway, in the 1990s, racial issues still flared with several cases of police brutality toward blacks, controversy over inequitable promotions for black police officers and allegations of racial profiling profiling in the affluent suburb of Highland Park. By 2010, Chicago homicide rate had surpassed that of Los Angeles and was more than twice that of New York City. By the end of 2015, Chicago's homicide rate rose from 18.6 per 100,000 people. By 2016, Chicago had recorded more homicides and shooting victims than New York City and Los Angeles combined. According to Jens Ludwig, the director of the University of Chicago's Crime Lab, and I went on their website, it's pretty interesting their uh their tagline is leveraging science to save lives so yeah check that out (laughs) anyway uh jens ludwig said quote one of the ways chicago is different is that our social conditions are not anything like those now in new york city and los angeles we are not just the most segregated city in america but the level of concentrated poverty we have in our neighborhoods is unlike anything in los angeles or new york Mm -hmm. you would not find an inglewood or garfield park anywhere in los angeles and new york And gang life is a substitute for hope in these neighborhoods. So gangs are rampant and every gang shooting invites a retaliatory attack. So I had a friend who um, asked, he's from Chicago, Mm -hmm. and he asked us to to talk about the shootings in Chicago. And I think this kind of explains the shootings in Chicago. Yeah. Why there's so many. Yeah, no. And I mean, um, the guys at Affirmative Murder were just talking about um, the amount of kids under 10 who've been um, killed as a result of being um, caught like by a stray um, because of this retaliatory um, violence. But I think we're looking at the wrong things. Like 
why are gangs necessary? What is it? What is it about society that's created those conditions necessary for people to turn to gangs in order to survive? Right. Um, don't punish the gang members. Don't. We're so quick to punish people, but we're and not, not to look at solving the, the root of, of the, the problem. problem. Yeah. 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 So yeah, I mean, yeah, the numbers are there. Yeah, the shooting is bad, but taking guns away and putting these gang members in jail obviously isn't going to solve the problem. We have tons of prisons and tons of people in jail. Um, and the problem continues. Right. We got to look at the uh, the segregation um, mm-hmm. in Chicago, the, like he said, the concentrated poverty mm-hmm. in uh, some neighborhoods um, and, and do things to solve those issues. Otherwise, it, it's just not going to stop. Exactly. Chicago's definitely has its problems, right? Um, And to this day, including systemic white supremacy in the police department, government, housing and employment and economy. Um, I was going to mention John Berg, who was uh, the head of the police department, who from uh, for decades uh, would send his officers to apprehend innocent black uh, people and torture them, essentially um, waterboarding, putting uh, cattle prods on their genitalia in order to uh, coerce confessions for crimes so they could close um, their file and um, lock somebody up. And eventually the city of Chicago had to pay reparations to um, those individuals that they harmed. But don't act like just because um, they paid those checks and um, Burge is like, you know, um, out of office uh, that those problems ended. But Let's not forget the good things that Chicago gave us. Oprah Winfrey, Michelle Obama, and Mm -hmm. her husband Barack. Yeah. And the current mayor, the Black queer woman, Lori Lightfoot. Yeah. Yes. Yeah. It's a vibrant city. There's a lot of really cool places to see. Um, One of my favorite museums is there, the Mm -hmm. Chicago Institute of Art um, and lots of restaurants. And yeah, it's a a fun city. Yeah. So at the time in the late 1980s, when Dorothy Williams committed the murders, Ronald Reagan was president of the U.S. Freddie Mercury was diagnosed with AIDS and Ronnie Reggs allowed hundreds of thousands of Americans to die of the disease without acknowledging that it was a problem. Mm -hmm. Margaret Thatcher was prime minister of England. The Berlin Wall came down in 1989, November 9th, 1989. Whoa. My daughter's birthday. Oh, wow. That's awesome. (laughs) Yeah. She was born on that day. And I remember sitting in the hospital and watching it on the news. Oh, no way. Yeah. Special. Yeah. (laughs) And there was an ongoing Cold War and the Iran-Contra affair was underway. Andy Warhol died. Gas cost 89 cents per gallon. And the show's Full House and The Simpsons aired on TV for the first time. Whoa. Yeah. The world's population was 5 billion. And towards the end of the 80s, the economy was not doing so hot. All right, so we've set the stage. Now we're going to get into the killer's early life. Dorothy Williams was born in Chicago, Illinois, on December 24th, 1952. We don't know for sure, but I suspect that she was a great migration baby. Uh, She was raised by her mother, Annie Pearl Williams. Uh, Her father was absent from the home, and she had at least two siblings, a sister named Peggy and Peggy, and a brother (laughs) named John. 
Her IQ has been measured various times between the range of 56 and 73. She repeated first grade in September of 1964 at the age of 11. She was in fourth grade. Oh. She repeated the fifth grade, and at the age of 14, she developed a drug addiction using both crack cocaine and heroin, and she was expelled from the Woodson School in November of 1967. Her formal schooling ended when she was 15 and pregnant with her daughter, Cherica, and she was expelled from a school for pregnant girls. Two years later, she gave birth to a son named Terrence. Dorothy could not read, and her sister Peggy helped her with her everyday life activities and matters that required reading and writing. But Peggy died in 1988, which at the time, Williams was 36. So now we're going to hit the timeline. Williams never held a job and did not even know her social security number. Mm. She has been described as a panhandler who went door to door at the Chicago Housing Authority senior citizens homes. She also sometimes did sex work to get by, something I've seen referred to as survival sex. Have you called it that before, Wendy? I I don't know if we have used it on the show, but um, I can understand. I I mean, it makes sense. Yeah, what it means is uh, it's done in desperation to get their basic needs met. Trading sex for food, a place to sleep, or for drugs. Mm -hmm. Uh, Williams would hang out at the CHA and look for victims, then follow them to their homes. There, she would knock on the door, and when the victim answered, she would ask for a glass of water, or offer to do a chore or an errand for them, or pretend to be a nurse who was sent to check on them, or use some other ruse to gain entry. Once she was let inside, she would rob the victim. In May of 1973, Williams kicked and struck a police officer in the face and chest numerous times when she was arrested for causing a disturbance. She was convicted and fined for resisting arrest. Um, oh my gosh, uh... United Shades is back, and uh, <laughs> I'm so excited. But W. Kamau Bell, and I've been trying to, I, I missed it airing on CNN, so I've been trying to, like, look for where I could buy it or, you know, find it. I haven't been able to find it anywhere. I was up till 1245 in the morning <laughs> looking for this episode. I found a few clips, but he was talking about how back in the day when he was growing up in the 70s, you used to be afraid of, like, as a black person, the police arresting you, right? Right. Um, but now the fear is, I, I'm i afraid they're going to kill me or yeah. shoot me. Yeah. Um, and that was real. Um, so in October of the same year, Williams hit a woman named Emma Lipsy in the face with an 18 square inch milk crate, knocking out two of her teeth. In 1975, Williams was arrested for delivery and possession of marijuana and sentenced to 18 months probation and a $200 fine. On January 11th, 1986, Williams knocked on the door of Jasper Irving's apartment. Jasper was 71 years old and used a walker to get around. He let Williams in. She demanded money for beer and Jasper gave her $2. Williams Williams said it wasn't enough, but she took the $2, then robbed him of the rest of his money and fled. Jasper called the police and a week later identified Williams for police. She was arrested and released on bond, but never showed up to her court date to answer for the charges. 
On December 5, 1987, Williams was at the home of Lonnie Laws, 79. As part of her sex work, Lonnie was William, one of Williams' regulars. Laws was five foot five inches tall and weighed only 97 pounds, so he was a little guy. <laughs> After they had sex, Williams asked Laws for money. He told her that she would have to come back for it. They argued and Williams became enraged. She gagged Laws with his pajama top, grabbed his belt and strangled him to death with it. She then ransacked his apartment, took the money from his wallet and left. A fingerprint was found on Lonnie's exterior door, which was later matched to Williams. In December of 1988, Williams went to the home of Caesar Zorel, 64. Caesar was five foot seven inches tall and weighed 120 pounds. So he was a little bigger than okay. uh, Lonnie, but still pretty slight. Yeah. Caesar offered Williams $50 for sex. Williams later said that Caesar refused to give her the money and pulled out a pocket knife, which he threatened her with. Williams was able to wrestle it away from him and then stabbed him to death with it. Oh, yikes. Um, by the way, I looked I looked for information about these people, obituaries, anything like articles about them. Mm -hmm. And there wasn't I couldn't find any details. Yeah, um, the only place I could find this information was in the court records. Ohio is a land of mystery, from missing shipwrecks and lost treasure beneath her surface to strange phenomenon slicing through her skies, from myths that have evolved around historic events and people to the unsolved murders and disappearances that keep her communities wondering what happened. Find Ohio Mysteries on your favorite podcast app, and let's explore the inexplicable. OhioMysteries.com True terrors of horror, bizarre happenings, unexplainable events. On our podcast, Disturbed, Terror Takes Center Stage. Each episode is a journey into the darkest corners of human existence, delving into bone-chilling tales of kidnappings, serial killers, maniacs, and the very essence of your worst nightmares coming to life on this weekly true horror show. Disturbed is not for the faint of heart. It's an exploration of real, unadulterated horror sourced from everyday people. Each episode is a descent into the macabre, where we narrate stories that will leave you on the edge of your seat and crawling in your skin. We navigate the disturbing narratives that lurk in the shadows, offering a raw and unfiltered listen into the most terrifying aspects of the human experience. Enter at your own risk and let the unsettling tales unfold in the haunting realm of Disturbed. And remember, listeners, stay safe out there. Hello, this is Gary Chahot welcoming you to check out the French History Podcast. Our main show covers the history of France from the first humans until present. If you liked Mike Duncan's The History of Rome and wanted a similar program covering the land of beauty, culture, and love, we are exactly that. We also host world-renowned scholars who have delivered guest episodes on their specialties, including 18th century pirates, 
revolutionary booksellers in 20th century Paris, the special friendship between the Marquis de Lafayette and Thomas Jefferson, and numerous others. Learn what you love and listen to the French History Podcast today. Um, so Williams then took the $87 from his wallet and left. On December 6th, 1988, the body of Caesar Zarel, 64, was found in his apartment significantly decomposed. So that was, I guess, early December. I wonder why it was so decomposed. It says in December of 1988, but I couldn't find an exact date. So he was probably there for for, uh, several days anyway. Yeah. Maybe that the heat was on. Oh, yeah. An autopsy showed that Caesar had died from three stab wounds to the chest and a lacerated lung. On April 4th, 1989, Williams robbed another senior citizen by the name of Mary Foster. On the very same date, three years after Williams robbed Jasper Irving, Williams came back to his apartment claiming to be checking on a gas leak. When Jasper cracked his door, Williams forced her way into the apartment, knocking him to the floor. She then beat him in the head with a stick, fracturing his skull. Oh, me, oh, my. Kind of interesting. She took a few years off, right? Yeah, three years. Yeah. uh, And she was like, picked the same guy to to rob. Yeah. So you wonder, like, what what happened to make her need to go back to rob? Like, yeah, I wonder if she... Did she remember that she had robbed him before or, you know, she did remember and she was mad at him because he did call the police on her. Oh, yeah. Okay. But it took her three years. So, I mean, it could be either or. (laughs) Could be. And I mean, remember, she was doing drugs. So, like, one, 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 one year two years, three years, like, you yeah, know, kind she, of she might not even know. remember. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so she tied a dish towel around his neck and dragged him around with it saying, I don't know what I'm going to do with you. Jasper said he had $260. She could have it and told Williams where to find it. She released him, found and took the money plus Jasper's apartment key, then fled. That's scary. Jasper again called the police and again identified Williams as the perpetrator. And again, she was arrested, bonded, and she never showed up for her court date. Surprise, surprise. Now, this is something my brother does all the time, too. (laughs) Really? Yeah, when he gets arrested, he gets bonded out and then he never shows for his court dates but then the bounty hunter like dog the bounty hunter could come find you <laughs> there's always a, a warrant out for his arrest and and then he eventually gets picked up again for something and and then he has to go back to court and the same shit happens over and over wow again, yeah. the cycle repeats yeah. interesting yeah. well you heard it first, Beth's first-hand <laughs> account of how the bond and jail system works. Thank you, Beth. For some people, anyway. Yeah. <laughs> Your brother is white, right? Yeah. Yeah, he's white. <laughs> <laughs> On July 1st, 1989, Williams robbed a man named Clyde Simmons. During this robbery, she twisted his genitals <gasps> and threatened to pull off his dick. <laughs> that sounds better. I was going to say penis, and then all of a sudden, dick came out. Keep going. Keep going. <laughs> 
if he didn't give her money. <laughs> I, I shouldn't laugh. This this would hurt, but this would hurt a lot. Yeah. But it's still kind of funny. Yeah. <laughs> On July 4th, she robbed Frederick Adamson. This was the third time she robbed Adamson. The third time. Jesus wow. Christ. During the first robbery, she'd squeezed his tongue and pulled it. Oh my God. So I read that, that, yeah, that is a terrible, I mean, like you just stick your tongue out too far and you're like, Ooh, yeah. Yeah. Right. But if for somebody to pull it, what a night, I mean, the pain, like you just must just be ringing. And then I didn't know you could do this until, I don't know, Instagram, but you can actually pop a testicle. Like, Oh yeah. Deflate it. Uh, yes. Yeah, you can kill somebody that way. Yes. Uh, didn't know that. So don't, until, so don't do that. Don't do it. But holy <laughs> shit! Yeah, man, she's getting more brazen, right? More yeah. aggressive. She's uh, very July, violent. Yeah. Yes. On July twenty fifth, nineteen eighty nine, ninety seven year old Mary Harris, ninety seven years young, Mary Harris spent the mor- morning with her daughter Marion. The two chatted as Marion helped her mom around the house. Mary had lived in the same apartment since since the late 60s or early 70s. When Marion left her mother around 2.30 p.m., Mary was in good health and was wearing a pink scarf around her head. Williams knocked on Mary's door later that day and offered to run errands for her. Mary let her in and gave her $2 to go get some milk. According to her later statement, when Mary turned, Williams grabbed her, took the pink scarf from her head, wrapped it around her neck, and choked her to death with it. Should say that Mary was black. So I'm going to give you a little culture corner because I feel like this is important because wash day was for me the other day. Wash day is Sundays. It's uh, a day when women of color, welcome to culture corner, spend the day tending to our tresses, washing it, deep conditioning it, walking around with plastic bags, all kind of contraptions (laughs) on our heads to deep condition and keep our hair healthy. Anyway, black women and brown women wear scarves and bonnets on our heads when we sleep to protect our hair uh, or the style that we're wearing at night when we sleep. So it doesn't move around a good, a good uh, material to have as a a satin bonnet, uh, cotton, no good. uh, Mess up your hair, hair, doesn't dry it out. Um, A scarf on the head can also be worn in public as a fashion or style, or if you just don't give any fucks and just need to run to Walgreens for some cheap wine and chocolate. (laughs) Anyway, when Mary was dead, Williams dragged her body into the bedroom, then ransacked her apartment. An autopsy later showed that Mary had also been beaten around the head and her height, hyoid, yeah, hyoid bone had been broken during strangulation. That must be a bone in the neck or on the chin yeah it's it's a bone that often gets broken during strangulation it's a bone in your neck yeah oh like a wishbone in a person it's kind of underneath the the jaw before your spinal column and so it kind of goes around oh you know what we are not um (laughs) scientists we're not investigators or doctors we are not learned doctors (laughs) Uh, but it's a bone in your neck and it broke and it broke. Yeah. (laughs) The damn thing (laughs) broke. Yes. (laughs) 
Uh, anyway, around 8 p.m., some friends found Mary dead on her bed. Both eyes were blackened and her scarf was knotted around her neck. The apartment had obviously been ransacked, drawers left open, and the closet in disarray. Police were called to the scene. Mary's daughter, Marianne, was called and later brought to the apartment. She noted that a number of items were missing from the apartment, including a realistic clarinet number 16 stereo. Don't know what that is. Two speakers and a bedspread and a cardboard box. It's just a brand of stereo. Oh, okay. Yeah. The apartment was dusted for fingerprints and fingerprint impressions on five items were found. A resident at the building, Hubert Carmichael, reported to police that around 6.30 p.m. he saw a woman leave the apartment building carrying a large cardboard box. He had seen her before and knew she had no legitimate reason to be there. She did not live nor work there and had no family there. He also reported that he had seen her choke another resident on a previous occasion. On August 2nd, 1989, Williams was arrested for trespassing at a different uh, CHA, Senior Citizen Apartment Building. She claimed to be her deceased sister, Peggy Williams, when she was questioned by police and she was released. Ooh, slick move, but Mm -hmm. the jig is almost up. Now we're going to get into the investigation and arrest. So on September 6th, 1989, Officer Betty Woods, a lady officer, was working alone in plain clothes at the building in which Harris's body had been discovered. She had been assigned to the division of the police department providing services to senior citizens and was familiar with the circumstances of Harris's death. While Officer Woods was in the building around 11.30 a.m., an excited Hubert Carmichael came up to her and told her that the woman that he had seen carrying the box after Mary's murder was leaving a bus stop with another woman. Although this woman had been in the building many times prior to the death of Mary Harris, she had stopped coming there since that time. Hubert reported that although she was wearing glasses and had cut and dyed her hair red, he was sure it was her. Officer Woods then approached the two women, identified herself as a police officer, showed the women her badge, and asked Williams if she could speak with her. Williams identified herself as Deborah Williams. Her companion was Michelle McBride. At first, Officer Woods attempted to have detectives who were familiar with the case come out to interview Williams, but the detectives were unavailable at the time. Officer Woods then told Williams and McBride that it might be faster and easier if they went to the station. Both women agreed to go. At the station, Officer Woods located the detective assigned to investigate the murder of Mary Harris, then left the two women with them. Detective Edward Schmidt and his partner spoke with Williams and McBride in the interview room. The officers then asked McBride to step out of the room. Their conversation with Williams began at about 115, 130 and lasted approximately 10 or 15 minutes. They asked her when she had last been in the building in which Mary Harris had lived, and she responded that it had been several years since she had been there, and she did not know Mary Harris. The two officers then went and spoke with Hubert Carmichael, who advised them that he had also seen Williams at the building the day before, on September 5th. So we got uh, some differing... uh, Stories here. At approximately 2 p.m., detectives asked Williams to sign a form consenting to the search of her apartment. She did so using the name Deborah Williams. From her apartment, detectives recovered a realistic clarinet number 16 stereo and two speakers. Shortly after three that afternoon, detectives spoke with Williams again, this time about five minutes in the same interview room. 
Detective Schmidt showed her the stereo. Williams admitted that it belonged to her, but said that she had bought it hot as stolen property on the street about a month earlier from a black man whom she did not know and could not describe. Convenient. At that time, she agreed to take a polygraph examination and to be fingerprinted. Williams was fingerprinted, and at about 6.30 p.m., she was transported to another location where she took and failed a polygraph examination. Her fingertips matched two two prints found at Mary's apartment, and at about 8.30 p.m., police formally arrested her for the murder of Harris. At first, Williams stuck to the story that she bought the stereo hot, but then she changed her story. She said that a man named Clyde took her to Mary's apartment that day, and while Mary lay moaning on the ground, Clyde strangled her to death. Mm. He then gave Williams $20 in the stereo. They left the building together, Clyde carrying the stereo for her. How nice. (laughs) What a gentleman. What a gentleman. Give it up for Clyde, everybody. Uh, When Williams was confronted with the fact that she had been seen leaving the building alone and carrying the box herself, she changed her story again. This time, she admitted that she had gone to Mary's apartment alone, looking for money to buy heroin, and that she had killed Mary and stolen the stereo. You got me, guys. She finally gave it up. Finally gave it up. So now we're going to get into the trial. So at the trial, the defense offered no evidence. I don't know why. Hmm. But both sides presented closing arguments. And then on March 12th, 1991, the jury deliberated for two and a half hours before finding Dorothy Williams, 37, guilty of first degree murder and robbery in the death of Mary Harris. Not that it matters because she did do it. But I do wonder about like the makeup of the courtroom. What what color was what race was the judge? Yeah. What race were the two attorneys? What race was the jury? Yeah. And it, it really bothers me that the defense offered no evidence like what what did they even do yeah it does seem kind of like a waste of resources yeah um, because she did admit it right so right so mm, why didn't she just plead plead guilty guilty. yeah i don't know uh good question see look at the og of true crime dissecting (laughs) the story bit by bit uh during sentencing williams's mother and daughter testified on her behalf but williams had nothing to say Her daughter, Cherica, said that her mother raised her and her upbringing had been normal. But later in 1992, Cherica was arrested for aggravated battery of a senior citizen. Interesting. When she robbed an 80-year-old man that she said her mother had introduced her to and cut him with a knife. During the hearing, when Emma Lipsy testified about the 1973 incident when Williams knocked two of her teeth out by hitting her with a milk crate. Williams became angry, held up her right hand and said, I hit her with my fist. <laughs> Whoa. Oh, my ma'am, calm down or I'll find you in contempt. Wow. Man, gee. Oh, I love that, that uh, visual. <laughs> yeah. You know, like not like she's any comparison, like on the like um, morality scale, but I just picture like a Fanny late Fanny Lou Hamer type lady, like I'm sick and tired of being <laughs> sick and tired. Uh, and she like raises I her hit fist. With my fist. I hit him with my fist. I mean, <laughs> A, it wasn't necessary. B, 
It just wasn't necessary. Uh, <laughs> you're already going to jail. Yeah. Uh, anyway, and, and pro- why does it matter if she hit her with a milk crater or yeah, fist? Yeah, exactly. <laughs> uh, prosecutors presented extensive evidence that Williams preyed on the elderly, using many different ruses to gain entry to their homes, including pretending to be a family member or acquaintance, or that she was there to help them. They also presented evidence that Williams was often physically abusive to these people. And on April 18th, 1991, Dorothy Williams was sentenced to death. After she was sentenced, Williams pleaded guilty to three other cases, the murders of Lonnie Laws and Caesar Zarell and the robbery of Jasper Irving. She was given two life sentences for the murders and seven more years for the robbery. So now we are going to get into where are they now? Well, Williams is currently housed at Logan Correctional Center. She appealed her death sentence on the grounds that she is intellectually disabled. Prosecutors claim that she is not intellectually disabled, that she is instead a malingerer, a faker, and that her IQ tests were all over the board, which indicates that she faked all of them. One doctor said that her IQ is in the normal range, although it is low normal. Mm -hmm. He said that the below normal IQ scores were faked, that you may see fluctuations of a few points, but not the wide discrepancies that were seen in this case. Mm, Very crafty, Ms. Williams. Williams claimed that she had a a head injury after being struck by a car, which caused her low IQ, but her accounts of when it happened differed and no medical records ever were produced to substantiate such injury. She also never mentioned the head injury to anyone until 1995. An MRI and EKG and a CT scan showed no evidence of hemorrhage, hematoma, or lesions to the brain. In one hearing, a judge stated that she, quote, had a basic formal education, was able to read, and in addition had a crafty intelligence above that of a normal person's. William's death sentence was later commuted to life in prison. The truth about the Haditha massacre has been covered up, but not anymore. I know you know what happened. They went into houses and killed women and children. What are you thinking? What a mess. U.S. Marines murdered innocent civilians in cold blood. And at the center of it all is 25-year-old Sergeant Frank Wooderick. And me. Murder in House 2. A new podcast from Crowd Network. Twenty-four hours ago, I found out the person that I'd been dating and seeing for the last six months as a con man. That is my sister Emma. Andrew Tonks's lies had been so convincing; she'd invested three hundred thousand dollars with him. However, the tables were about to turn on Andrew. What he didn't know was that Emma had discovered his real identity. But to get any chance of justice, Emma had to act like it was business as usual. Coming up in this series... And that's when murder, all this stuff goes through my mind. I'm really, really scared. I'm assuming Sarah has watched too much Netflix and figures I've been defrauding you. Couldn't be further from the truth. That's what this was, a real-life story that seems so unbelievable, but it was actually true. A true story that all starts with one simple swipe to the right. I'm Sarah Ferris. And I'm Emma Ferris. And this is my story, Conning the Con.
Yeah, so she was for sure hustling until the very end. Yeah, yeah. Uh, so now we're going to get into what made her snap as well as our takeaways. Hit it, Beth. So I can only guess because we don't really know enough about her early life, what her home life was like as a child. Mm-hmm. But uh, it seems like she was living by her wits, that she did not have enough life skills to get by and the drugs did not help. It seems that she did not qualify as intellectually disabled, but uh, she probably did have a lower than average IQ. Uh, She never finished formal schooling. Um, There could have been something else going on with her other than her IQ. She could have had other issues like ADHD or dyslexia that caused problems for her in getting through school Mm -hmm. um, back when she was coming up. Uh, They didn't know enough about these issues. Mm -hmm. Um, But I believe that she was failed by the system, that she fell through the cracks and nobody cared. So she was um, left to live by her wits. and, And this is the result. Yeah. I agree. This was a a black female uh, serial killer who I've never heard of before. Had you heard of her, Beth? No. Well, um, I only came across her um, when researching for this podcast. I mean, she's been on the list for a while, um, Mm -hmm. but that's the only time I ever heard of her. Yeah. 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 Same. Um, there was a lot going on in Chicago at the time, including, as I said, mentioned the Chicago with this, uh, the, the scandal with the Chicago PD led by John Burge and his midnight crew. They also were called Burge's ass kickers or the A team that led, um, to the torture and coerced confection confessions of almost 120 black people. Um, I think that this woman had a tough upbringing, uh, even though we don't know for sure, but it's just my gut. Probably. Um, yeah. Yeah. Even though Chicago is a very black city, like I've heard some people refer to Chicago as the Mississippi of the North, but it is a very segregated and economically, uh, I don't want to say downtrodden only cause I can't think of a better word, but for black people specifically. And I am leaning towards the idea that, you know, the crime is the result of these conditions that were yeah. created by no fault of her own. Um, we hate crimes, including murder. But what what if we eliminate the things that lead to these conditions? Desperately poor people like Williams, uneducated people who aren't aware of better options, people in pain who have suffered abuse, abandonment, poverty, racism, who want to feel better and turn to substances like heroin, as Ms. Williams did, and then perpetuate trying to avoid that condition she was in and the pain of dealing with it. If we eliminate all those things, then Fruit Loop ceases to exist. Crime in general <laughs> might all become, you know, things of the past. But since that can't happen, I just feel bad for Williams. I feel bad for her family, including her daughter and the victims um, and uh, her victims' families. Yeah, yeah. So now we're going to get into how not to get murdered. So if you love true crime and you don't want to die, here's a tip for you. (laughs) Every time. (laughs) 
This segment is not intended to be victim blaming. We thought of this segment because I read somewhere that a lot of people listen to true crime because they want to know what they can do to be safer. This is not meant to blame the victims. It's just learning from other people's experiences. Sometimes we have no suggestions for a particular episode and we'll just offer up generic tips. Another one. <laughs> I just like that sound effect. <laughs> it's like, so, are you there? <laughs> sorry. And then I heard that and I got scared. <laughs> oh, <laughs> I just, I really What's happening? I found it today. Uh, so uh, it's election time, right? So this is, I kind of got these ideas from the story. It's election time, right? And the census is still underway. I don't think it's done yet. But if you love true crime and you don't want to die, then fill that shit out online or mail in your ballot. <laughs> Do not answer the door if you're not expecting somebody. Joe Biden could be at your front door to canvas. Someone claiming to be a nurse is outside waiting to test you for COVID-19. Don't do it. Meals on Wheels, that was one of the things that came to my mind because a lot of her victims were elderly. They are vetted. They vet their volunteers and their routes are predetermined. So you would know if they're coming, period. Don't answer the door if you're not expecting somebody. And if somebody rings your doorbell and um, like that FedEx guy who killed the judge, oh, yeah. the judge's son, um, and you're, again, not expecting a package, like you could just be like, hang on, let me get my cousin or like pretend to be a dog. You know, like, <laughs> hang on, just leave it at the front. Yeah, uh, yeah. No? you know, like make up all these voices. So it's, I don't know, just but don't answer the door if you're not expecting something. Yeah, like yeah. Don't open your door for anyone. Talk <laughs> through the door like you were saying. Um, or if you have the means, use a video uh, doorbell, one of yes. those rings or whatever. Yeah. And then have your phone in your hand. Mm -hmm. when you go to the door and look out the people or talk through the door or whatever. So you can call 911 mm -hmm. if the person becomes threatening. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Absolutely. Have it on speed dial. Yes. <laughs> yes. It is crazy out there. So yeah. um, those are our quick tips for the show. Now we're going to get into the shout out portion where we shout out any content by people of color, really any marginalized groups or any true crime goodies. I wanted to shout out Forgotten, the Missing Women of Juarez. Have you heard of this podcast, Beth? I have. I have. Woo! Yeah. They've, yeah. Been, they've been advertising the shit out of it, but it's worth it. It is so good. It's about the hundreds of women who have gone missing and murdered. I mean, they're talking mass graves, yeah. carvings in people's bodies. And at this point, it's not clear to me if it's a serial killer, if somebody's trafficking people's organs, or if this is a satanic cult. I'm dying for the next episode. <laughs> but the pod chronicles the investigation with law, you know, they're investigating the police on both sides of the border. Um, they're talking to terrified witnesses and corrupt authorities. It is so good. Forgotten, the missing women of Juarez. Nice. Thank you. Mm -hmm. So uh, my my shout out is not really a shout out. It's more like a heads up. OK. I uh, just wanted to mention that a six part docuseries is premiering on Epics this Sunday, July 26. It's called Helter Skelter, an American Myth. And yes, it's about the Manson family. OK. 
According to Epics, quote, the legend of the Manson family permeates our culture, our media, and our collective fears. Why, after 50 years, does this ragtag group of hippies and their two-night murder spree still fascinate and perplex us? This six-episode Epics original series, Helter Skelter, an American Myth, is the most definitive recounting of the Manson family story ever put on screen and will challenge everything viewers think they know about this bizarre chapter in American history. Mm. So I'm going to be watching that. I know Helter Skelter has a very um, um, special place in your heart. Yeah. It's the Uh, first true crime book I ever read. Yeah. It popped your true crime cherry, babe. (laughs) Yeah. Uh, So I'm definitely going to be watching that. mm. And uh, I think it's worth mentioning that originally it was going to air in June, but they moved it to July 26 because... One of Manson's, um, one of his, the things that he told people, his family members, was that there was going to be a race war <gasps> and um, that he was going to, uh, like, the black people were going to rise up. There was going to be a race war, but then after they killed all the white people, they wouldn't know what to do because <laughs> Manson was a racist. Oh, and so, yeah. So then he would he would uh, be like their their leader or something. I don't know. He was nuts. So uh, anyway, with everything that was going on in June, <gasps> they decided to move it to July. Wow. Okay. Like you heard Manson, and I was like, <laughs> Yeah, I know. Snooze. You know. <laughs> but I th- then I, yeah. you add race war, and <laughs> yeah, let me rub the sleep out of my eyes. <laughs> <laughs> get a cup of coffee. Yeah, uh, I, 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 I don't know why I'm fascinated with this story either. Like, like they said, you know, why does this, why <laughs> does this still fascinate and perplex us? I don't uh, know. Another but, one. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, he was, he was nuts, and and how he got all these people to do all the things that they did is also nuts. So yeah. Ooh, yeah. well, thank you, Beth. I am very interested. So, cool. um, well, that's it for today, folks. Uh, but in the meantime, till next time, where can the people find us, Beth? Our website is fruitloopspod.com. Our Facebook page is Fruit Loops Pod, And our discussion group is Fruit Loops Pod Discussion on Facebook. We are also on Twitter and Instagram at Fruit Loops Pod. And links to our sources will be in our footnotes. If you want to support the show, you can send us a donation on the Cash app. Or you can become a monthly patron through our Podbean patron page. This will help us pay for things like our website and pod hosting. There's no minimum and no commitment. Even a dollar would help. Mm. And as always, we have merch for sale on our website. That's right. This is a weekly podcast and new episodes drop every Thursday. So until next time, look alive, guys. It's crazy out there.
Did you guys hear about that couple that went on vacation and one spouse murdered the other? In fact, the entire vacation was planned just so that they could make the murder look like an accident. Ah, so like a slaycation. Oh boy, sounds like a fun new true crime podcast to me. On every episode of Slaycation, we'll examine true cases of people who were killed while on vacation. Was it murder? (coughs) Or just a horrible accident? (coughs) That's up to you and the law to decide. But either way, if you leave for your vacation in the plane and come home under the plane, you've definitely gone on a slaycation. Join us every week for a fascinating new episode. 911, what's your emergency? But make sure to pack your body bags because getting away can be murder. This is Slaycation. On the morning of August 1st, 1966, shots ring out from the observation deck of the clock tower on the University of Texas campus. It marks the infamous beginning of the modern era of mass shootings in America. You're listening to Stop the Killing podcast. Join us as we take you behind the crime scene tape to explain global mass shootings and mass attacks. I'm Sarah Ferris, but more importantly, this is Catherine Schweitz, the former head of the FBI's active shooter program. I spent five years as the FBI's top executive looking for answers to the mass shooting crisis. I've been at the shooting scenes. I've traced heroic acts of bravery. And I've sat silently and listened to the heart-wrenching stories from survivors. Amongst this horror, there is hope. We all hold the key to stop the killing. You just need to know how to unlock the door. Download Stop the Killing and be part of the solution. Search Stop the Killing on Apple, Spotify, and all the usual suspects.